Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Glycerine, recorded by Bush and written by the band's lead singer, and our guest on this episode, Gavin Rossdale. As the lead vocalist, guitarist, songwriter, and founder of the band Bush, Gavin Rossdale has sold over 24 million records in the U.S. and Canada, garnered over 1 billion streams, and won the prestigious Ivor Novello Award for International Achievement in Songwriting. He and the band are responsible for a string of 25 consecutive top 40 hit singles on Billboard's modern, mainstream, and active rock charts spanning over 30 years. Seven of those songs reached number one, including Come Down, Glycerine, Machine Head, the Grammy-nominated Swallowed, and 2022's More Than Machines. Rossdale has also starred in films such as The Bling Ring and Constantine, and has found success with his solo work, including the top 40 single Love Remains the Same. Bush recently released its critically acclaimed ninth studio album, The Art of Survival. Gavin and the band's latest project is called Loaded, The Greatest Hits, 1994-2023, to and is Bush's first career-spanning compilation. And just a note, with Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions and new music from both The Beatles and The Rolling Stones, we have a lot of important things to talk about in Part 1. You would be cheating yourself to skip ahead to the interview, but just so you know, the conversation with Gavin kicks off right around the 28-minute mark. Part 1. Well, Scott, we've known each other for a long time, and um, I remember back in the days when you wrote for our school newspaper, The Talon. Yes, hard-hitting um, journalism, if yes, I recall. And you, were, uh, you were kind of like uh, the music editor, weren't you? Like you? I remember you coming in with some uh, album reviews and things like that. Uh, yeah, I was the teenage Robert Criscow of the Davidson County area there in, in Nashville, Tennessee. I, I thought of you as more of a Hilburn type, but <laughs> that's fine. Um, well, you know, one thing that I... I knew you were good, and those were good reviews, and it was fun to read in our high school paper, but I don't think any of us saw what was coming, that you've become like this serious writer, this respected music historian, to the point that I want to let our listeners know that you were tapped to write the essay for Willie Nelson's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this past week. Yes, yeah, there was a... Um like a, a book that comes along in the, the induction ceremony book and there's in-depth profiles on all of the inductees. And uh, yeah, so I wrote the Willie Nelson uh, essay, which was super cool. I mean, that's incredible. I, I know we watch, we watch our lives, you know, pass kind of incrementally and like a small honor follows a bigger honor follows a small, you know, and, we, and you know, your life just sort of progresses, but just think about that for a second, you know, that you were the one they asked. You were the one they thought, this is the guy that's going to do it. And, and they came to you, my friend Scott, <laughs> to write this, this uh, essay for, number one, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is a major brand uh, in right, right. the world of music, about Willie Nelson, who is one of the most legendary singer-songwriters to yeah. ever pick up a pen and a guitar. Possibly the... Uh, I'm going to not even qualify it as possibly. I, I would say that Willie Nelson is the greatest living American songwriter. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a fair thing to say. And so it's... I mean, it's staggering. You know, we, we sit here and... and and just act like silly dudes or whatever and go to lunch and have a podcast. But, I mean, the, that's that's an incredible thing that, that you were um, asked to do, and you did a great job with it. Um, so, 
congratulations to you thanks it was it was cool uh and yeah so my wife and i went to new york to go to the induction ceremony and uh, that was a lot of fun i had not been to a rock and roll hall of fame induction before i'd you know i've seen them like on tv or whatever but i'd never been in the audience uh for one live so that was very cool um and uh yeah, I went, got to go to a couple of VIP parties beforehand, mm. which was like really fun. I ran into um, Jimmy Jam uh, at a party um, the night before the induction ceremony. And uh, listeners might remember that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were on the show. Yeah, I the went show. up to, uh, to, to meet him. And, you know, when we had done the show, it was not in person. So I went up and I said, hey, I I don't expect you to remember this. I know you do a lot of press, but uh, you were on my podcast, which is called Songcraft. He I and and he kind of looked for a minute. He's kind of like you could tell his wheels were turning. And uh, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it was on Zoom. And it was you and another guy. There there we go. He actually he remembered. Yeah. So I totally did not expect him to remember. Did you call him Um, Mr. Jam? Mr. Hello, Mr. Jam. So that was cool. Um, And he and I took a picture and he actually didn't have the shades on, but he pulled out the shades for the photo because he's it. like, yeah, he, he well, knows. Well, you might have had a flash. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but so that was really fun that I got to meet him, someone who we've interviewed on the show, and I got to talk to him, and he was super nice, which was great. But the show was, uh, it was really a cool experience to be there and see it in person. I mean, um, some of the highlights were uh, Elton John inducting Bernie Taupin, which you would have flipped out over because yeah, you're a huge fan. Um, and Elton uh, played Tiny Dancer, just him and a piano which was really cool um then the surprise of the show was that jimmy page showed up and did the tribute to link ray which i was like oh that's super cool it's jimmy page i didn't realize that he had not actually performed live playing guitar in like a decade or so um so having him up there and he's playing his gibson double neck like the iconic the guitar you want to see jimmy page playing i'd never seen Jimmy Page performed live before. So that was very cool to be in the building uh, to, to see that. Um, and then um, Willie Nelson, of course, was was fantastic. And uh, Shaka Khan performed. Um, there were a whole bunch of guests who came out um, among them or Stevie Nicks, ranging from like Stevie Nicks to Olivia Rodrigo, like new artists, yeah. classic artists. Um, you know, they did a George Michael. George Michael was inducted. Another person that you're yeah. a huge fan of. Actually, just being there, being part of it was super cool. I met David Frick, who writes for Rolling Stone, which awesome. is like, that's like some real nerd stuff. But yeah. like, if you're a nerd like us, you know, David Frick is like, this guy's been writing for totally. a thousand years and we've read all kinds of reviews and stuff he's done. So that was super cool. He was a very nice guy. Um, but yeah, it was an incredible experience just to be there and, and be a part of it. You know, I watched it on uh, Disney Plus streaming, which I think was probably an equal experience. <laughs> probably. It's probably just as amazing for me to be on my couch watching it. No, um, I was like, live texting you from the thing and then you're like oh yeah i think i guess i could actually watch this what well, i started watching some of the live stream and then i was the other night i watched it you know afterwards yeah you know, kind of fast forwarded through and watched the parts i wanted to watch you know it's i love those induction ceremonies there there have been some moments over the years that are some of my favorites um i will say that as time goes on it's becoming this reminder of how our heroes are aging. Yes. You know, and and there were some great performances. Yeah. Peter Frampton comes out and he was shredding. Yeah. But he's seated. Right. You know, it's right. it's a different yeah. experience now. And and Jimmy Page, if we're being honest, was a little bit out of tune. Jimmy Page has been out of tune a lot of times. <laughs> you know? But I I think that it, um, you know, God, cherish these artists while they're here. You yeah. know, it kind of gave me that right. feeling. And, 
you know, these guys are still performing at a high level, but you can just tell, hey, the the kind of classic class of rock stars is not going to be with us forever. Yeah, it's it's definitely a reminder that, you know, rock and roll is we are on the cutting edge of the aging of rock and roll. We haven't yeah. experienced like rock stars, you know, getting old and and dying before. Like our generation is the generation that is experiencing that. Yeah. And obviously our our parents generation who are the ones who started listening to these people at the very beginning, but you know, the the whole idea of rock music right. as a genre is still fairly new. So we're seeing the first generation, you know, of after rock and roll, yeah. meaning Chuck Berry, a little rich you know buddy holly after rock and roll became rock and now yeah. you're getting into talking about you know the beatles and the stones and led zeppelin or whatever we're seeing those people start to to go and yeah. you know uh there's several things i think we could talk about in that regard um in, in terms of legacy artists and and how they are nurturing that legacy today but uh not only did i go to a cool show yeah. while i was off uh gallivanting in new york you were gallivanting in in vegas right yeah uh went to the sphere show the much ballyhooed uh u2 uh, residency at the sphere yeah uh, how which, was that man it was amazing um i felt like i was looking into the future uh mm. just that venue the the way the screens worked the 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 visuals that accompanied this concert were like nothing I've ever seen. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that I ex know when I'm going to see something like it again. I mean, it's not something you can just reproduce at your local venue. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was immersive and it was multidimensional and it was, it was just one of the, the biggest, most arresting visual things I've ever seen. Huh. Um, and yeah, I, I felt like I, it was kind of cool because I, I love you two and they've always been, um, kind of at the edge of art. They've always been pushing things and taking risks. And to see them, you know, uh, being a part of this thing that's pushing live music and visuals forward. Right. Um, it's really cool. Um, I will say that at the same time, I found myself a little conflicted because I've seen you two, I don't know, 10, 15 times. And it's a rock show, you know, and you go to the forum and, yeah. and people are crammed in there and you're standing up. And this was something different. This mm. was a Vegas show. Huh. Yeah. A it spectacle. Was a, yes. It was a mostly seated affair. <laughs> and, you know, you could make the case that maybe the star of the show was the visuals and the music was something of a backdrop. It was a live music backdrop. Yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, this is an amazing experience. Am I comfortable with the idea that this is what U2 is now going to do? Is yeah. this going to be their future? Are they sort of, you know, quiet quitting? Uh, the the rock show as we know it and moving into this sort of multimedia format which aging is aging gracefully yeah which is it was overwhelming and it had me you know figuratively on my back but at the same time there's something a little less visceral right and kinetic and human and sweaty about it um, which <laughs> right, is what right. we also love about rock shows so it, again it's it's watching our our favorite artists our our aging artists and breaking new ground yeah. and doing risky things and doing interesting things and sort of staying at the forefront of culture. But also, I don't know, is the landing gear coming down? Like, I'm not sure <laughs> how to view it. And I think the fact that it's in Vegas also has its own connotation as well. Sure, sure. But, you know, I think that doesn't mean now what it once meant. I mean, you got Adele right. doing a Vegas residency. Totally. And, you know, I think when we were kids, Vegas residency meant very like lounge act, right. you know, kind of thing. So I think there that 
paradigm has kind of changed a little bit. I think the thing that is probably most surprising is that within the last uh, couple of weeks, we have gotten a new album from the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. and we have gotten a new song from the Beatles. The Beatles. And I uh, said to my dad the other day, I said, in, in 1964, would you have ever even imagined that, A, that the year 2023 is even a thing? <laughs> that must have sounded like science fiction. Right. Uh, but that in the year 2023 that you would be looking forward to the new Rolling Stones album and the new Beatles single. Um, you know, my dad has a story about he was literally about to get on the plane to be deployed to Vietnam and on the radio, they kept teasing. We're going to play the new Beatles single, which was Hey Jude. And, wow. and he was just like, I hope they don't call us to get on that plane before they play this song. I got it. I want to hear this song. And he got to hear it. And like, literally as the song ended, they're like, all right, Bomar, let's go. And he gets on the plane and flies to Vietnam. The song's like seven minutes long. So it really could have gone either way. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Like, can we let this finish, sir? <laughs> um, but you know, to think that like my dad experienced that and now he's, he's hearing a new yeah. Beatles song. So I want to talk about both of these things, starting with the stones, by the um, way, McCartney plays, on the Stones record too, which yes. is, talk about that kind of crazy, which synergy. is, which is nuts. Yeah. I heard someone say before that, uh, you know, the Stones no longer have their bassist and drummer and the Beatles, all they have is their bassist and drummer. So, mm. Mm. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I had heard the single, um, from the Stones album, which is called angry. Yeah. And when I heard it, I watched it with the accompanying video and I did not like it at all. Um, the video, uh, has a young girl in her twenties, like this sexy young girl, although she looks very like eighties kind of metal. It's, it's an okay. odd thing. And she's riding around like sunset strip in the back of a convertible. And I'm like, if you are in your eighties and you're trying to be a rocker, I don't know that you want to put somebody who could be your great granddaughter, great granddaughter, <laughs> great granddaughter, yeah. yeah, great granddaughter and, and put her in constant motion in a car. <laughs> Um, I don't know that, that the visual works well because right. I was just like, Oh my gosh. And I thought the song seemed tired, um, mm. and just lacked energy. And I was like, meh, I watched it once and I didn't think about it. Well, I found myself the other day having to go on a little road trip and I knew I was going to be in the car for like an hour. Now, in fairness, I was coming down a mountain road, heading down to the desert and it was a gorgeous day. So I was in a great mood. I thought I'm going to put on the new stones album and, and see what I think of the whole thing. Angry is the lead track mm. hearing it without the visual. I was like, Whoa, I was so wrong. This song isn't lazy. It is in a groove. Huh. Like it is laid back. It's got the right groove. And I freaking loved it. I wow. loved hearing it. And I was like, this sounds like the stones. I mean, it's, it, this wow. is the rolling stones. And then like some of the other stuff on the album, like some of it is like a nod to, um, their early stuff. Like there's a song called dreamy skies. That sounds like, um, sweet Virginia. And there's a song called driving me too hard. And that sounds like tumbling dice. So they're kind of hearkening back to that exile on main street era, which is my favorite stones era. Um, but a highlight is uh, Bite My Head Off, which yeah. is the track that you mentioned that McCartney plays fuzz bass on. Oh, it's heavy. And the song is like punk. Yeah. I mean, it it has energy and it's got a bite to it, no pun intended. Um, and it's aggressive and it is rock and roll. And I'm listening to this going, these dudes are in their 80s. Yeah. And when you think about the fact that these guys are in their 80s and they're playing this, 
unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I was actually surprised that they didn't um, that they didn't sort of take advantage of the McCartneyisms that he does on bass. <laughs> right. And then I thought that's actually kind of cool because th- that yeah. is sort of makes it feel like more punky that it's not. He's not doing little runs. Yeah. He's not going into that sort of like bouncy, right? You know, melodic kind of rhythmic little, thing that he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just straight ahead. Like, and, yeah. and there, there's a point where it kind of like boils down to the bass, and you hear Mick kind of going like, "Come on, Paul!" Like, yeah, yeah. I was like, "Oh, this is so fun." Yeah, you know, totally. And I think that's that's what's kind of missing sometimes. It's just like that that since it's off the rails. Yeah, it's kind of messy and it's fun. Yeah, and and that's why these guys got into doing it. Right. Um, and to think that at, at 80, 80 whatever, 81, that they're all out there still just having fun and throwing yeah. paint at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I got to say, like, these are not the best songs in the Stones catalog by any means, but they're good enough and it sounds fabulous. And every time I reminded myself, these guys are in their 80s, I'm like, this is a credible album. And I... Uh, it, I liked the Stones Voodoo Lounge album that came out in 94. Like I put that in there with my favorite Stones albums. Um, And this one is certainly the best since then. Um, It's, it's the best thing they've done this century, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yeah, I mean, again, I I was pleasantly surprised. I I hope it's the last one. I hope they leave it there because I think it's a great note to end on. Uh, but I really, I really enjoyed it. This is a topic for another day. I want to put a pin in this right now, but I'll say this. You know, you look at a band like the Stones who, when they first came out, the goal was kind of to sound like something more older and beat up than they were. Right. You know, they wanted to sound like kind of old blues yeah, band, right? Yeah, they wanted to be Howlin' Wolf. And it's possible that around the time of Voodoo Lounge, they actually reached the age that they've been trying to sound like the whole time, <laughs> right, you know? Right, um, the, so. the thing that's really wild is I saw the Voodoo Lounge tour because I thought, well, this has to be the last one. Yeah. yeah. And as it turns out, that was mid Everybody's been saying that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, kind of hard shift over to the Beatles song. Yeah. Because uh, we went to that uh, U2 show on Wednesday night yeah. and woke up the next morning. And the Beatles song was out. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow. So I yeah. listened to it on my AirPods in the airplane uh, lounge or the airport lounge. And I found, my, I, I didn't know what I w- was going to think. Right. I wasn't sure what I wanted to think. Right. I, I care so much about the Beatle canon that it, part of me goes, well, if I love this new song too much, do, does that mean that I'm weird and I'm actually not connected to the source material like I should be? Right. Or if I don't like it, does that mean that I'm not like, you know, giving these guys the love that they deserve for putting out a new song? And um, man, I found myself about halfway through, I stopped thinking. Huh. I stopped thinking about all that. And I was just listening to the song. Right. And I was like, this is a pretty song. And when I divorced myself from having to go, well, is it a be? Is it really a Beatles song? Does it really stand up with you know right. this song or that song? Why my guitar gently weeps or something? Or why did I just pick two Harrison songs? I don't know. <laughs> but when I got done listening to it, I thought I didn't really go through all that in my mind as I was listening. Yeah. I just sort of fell into it. And started. I enjoyed the fact, you know, it starts in this. It's kind of minor key thing, and when it gets to the chorus, it kind of shifts. It actually, changes keys. Right. And it took me. It kind of took me on a journey. Um, yeah. And I, I loved the strings. I thought the strings were beautiful. I thought um, it was basically probably my second or third listen when I started to analyze. Yeah, right. I started to think about it and like, how did they do this? How did they put this together? This is a demo of John's and like hearing Paul's influence in it all. And I've come away from the whole thing just on all levels, kind of just feeling warm about yeah. that new song now and then. I'm not going to put it 
anywhere in a top 10 of right. best Beatles songs or whatever. I'll tell you that I kind of like it better than Free as a Bird or Real Love, the two songs that came out in 95. I would agree with that. But um, And in case anyone's been living under a rock, this was a, a demo that John had recorded that at the time that they did those songs in 95, this was one that was in consideration, but the technology just wasn't there at the time to clean it up enough to do yeah. it right. And now the technology is there. So they're able to isolate John's vocals. They're able to make them sound as strong as possible. And, um, and they even had, because they were working on it in 95, George actually played on it. So it really is all four Beatles um, appearing on this recording, you know, I, I, I was a little more lackluster on it. I listened to it and I was like, okay. And you know, but the expectations are so high. It's like yeah. when somebody tells you this is the best movie ever and you go totally. watch it and you know, just knowing it's the Beatles makes it like the stakes are so high. So I listened to it and I thought, eh, it's okay. Um, then I thought, well, I'm gonna go watch the official video. I thought maybe this is going to be a reverse stone situation. <laughs> like I heard it and I went, it's like okay. The, yeah. The video is going to help you like it more. Yeah. The video, I'm going to be like, well, the video is unsettling. I <laughs> did not care for the video. They're intermingling like young Beatles with old Beatles. And there's some like green screen stuff happening. I think I do not care for the video, but um, it does make me feel warm. I 100% go with you on that. I think for me, it's like this. And as you know, I'm big into sports metaphors all the time. <laughs> Uh, so I don't want to screw this up since I actually know nothing about sports, but I think it would be kind of like if there was a high school basketball team that were the state champions and like everybody on this team was like an incredible basketball player. And then at the 50th reunion, the guys are still in decent shape for their age. You know, they're old guys yeah. now, but it's like they get out there and they, they play a game of basketball together and you're watching it and you're like, yeah, this isn't, the high school thing, <laughs> right. but so great to see the guys together yeah. again. So cool to see them out there playing one more game. So cool to get to witness that not because it itself is great, but because of all the warm feelings that it conjures right. that are connected to it. So very cool. You know, I yeah. think God bless them. I, I think it's cool that the Beatles did this as music. It doesn't do that much for me yeah. as sentimentality. I like it. And I definitely agree with you that it's better than the two songs they put out in 95. I mean, imagine if you hadn't. No pun of, intended. Yeah. Um, <laughs> imagine that you hadn't heard McCartney in a while. Right. And you sort of heard his kind of older voice popping in a couple of times in the song. Yeah. Now, that would be kind of shocking, you <laughs> right, know, right. especially paired up with John's 35 year old voice or whatever age right. he was when he did the demo. But I think the fact that we've heard McCartney so much in, in you know, basically continuously yeah. since the end of the Beatles. We've, we've heard him age and mature. We've heard his writing change. We've heard his right. voice change. And so, you know, to follow that uh, metaphor about the, the team getting back together to play a game, like I, I've, seen, I've seen Paul play <laughs> right. in the last while, so I, I knew what sort of to expect from him. Right. But I think there was like a, there's something to the, the alchemy, the combination of putting those, those folks together. I think even the part of the story, there's a part of, this, of the narrative around this song that George didn't really want to put it out. Yeah. Which is also kind of like on brand. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. George is like, oh, I don't know. You know? <laughs> right. And uh, so I, I, I think it's a fitting, you know, is, is it a, a fitting coda to the entire career of the Beatles? You know, Abbey Road is probably still that. Yeah. Um, I think that that's still, you know, it's like, again, a sports thing. Michael Jordan played for the Wizards. Right. We remember him for that last shot in Utah. That's <laughs> right. when he was kind of at the height of his powers and, and he walked away 
great. Yeah. And he, like, listen, he put up some good numbers with the Wizards, and th- those were okay years and everything, and didn't really take anything away from his legacy, but we remember him in that red jersey with yeah. the Bulls. And I think with the Beatles, we'll always remember them, you know, going out with, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Yeah. You know, and walking yeah, yeah. off in the sunset at that moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the rest is nostalgia. Yeah, and, and they kind of gave us this as a as a bonus. Yeah, a bonus. It, it, this is the hidden track. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. It's 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 just it's an asterisk, and yeah. it, I think it's pleasant enough uh, for for what it is. They I'll better t- not do this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. <laughs> yeah. Enough. Um, I'll tell you the thing, and just to wrap all this up is going back to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. You know, Cheryl Crow was inducted. Um, Rage Against the Machine was inducted. Missy Elliott was inducted. I find all of that a little unsettling because (laughs) this is the music of our generation. That's our era, yeah. Um, You know, I remember getting that first Sheryl Crow record. I remember getting the first Rage Against the Machine record. And I hate to admit, I think Missy Elliott's probably even a little younger. (laughs) You know, that that was probably like, that might even be a little beyond. And you have to, 30 years is the eligibility for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Your first record has to come out. So, you know, and, and we're talking to Gavin Rossdale from Bush today. And, yeah. and again, that's music. I remember buying that first Bush record. Oh, yeah, like, man. This is the music of our generation. Uh, and, and it's fine for me to sort of go, yeah, the Stones, the Beatles, that's that's legacy artists. When we start talking about U2 and Sheryl Crow and Bush and, you know, George Michael yeah. and, you know, and these are now the legacy yeah. artists. That kind of blows my mind. I'm a little, uh, I'm, I'm a little not cool with that. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I get it. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, talking to Gavin and having this conversation on the calendar, uh, it, it sent me deeper. I, I've always liked Bush. Yeah, I like Bush a lot. And it sort of sent me back into the catalog, listening through stuff. And he had a solo album called Wanderlust that I enjoyed too. And I went back and listened to that. And I was really struck by how he has maintained the character of bush yeah throughout the entire time like the most recent the newish bush stuff still feels angry <laughs> and immediate and visceral and right. and all that stuff and I, I think you know better than a lot of bands have there are a yeah. lot of bands that have continued to make records and they've kind of softened a bit you know yeah, yeah. they sort of they're going kind of gently into that good night and, and <laughs> right and gavin rossdale still he still you know has the ability to scare me and and right, right. to have these songs that feel they feel pointed and they feel heavy and they feel raw and they feel ragged. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to the Bush of the last, you know, decade, yeah, 10 to 20 years, as much as I enjoyed going back into the early stuff. So this was a fun, fun thing to dive into this week. Yeah, it absolutely was. And and even when he got on the Zoom, I'm like, this man is striking. Oh, uh, he's, he's he still looks like, he, yeah, <laughs> he looks like he did. Like, he's how I remember. You I know? think, I, you know, Gavin came up on the screen and then I immediately looked at us and I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just sort of didn't feel cool. Yeah, we're not doing well. Yeah, totally. <laughs> he look, he's doing great. Like whatever, he's... whatever routine, like skincare, workout, diet. I, I probably should have asked him that. We just right. we only asked him about music, but I probably should be like, what are you doing? <laughs> right, to right. still look this awesome. Right. Um, so uh, all that to say, go to Patreon.com/slash/SongCraftShow so that you can help sponsor us and we can buy vitamins. <laughs> Hey, Songcraft listeners, today's episode, like so many others, is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. Go to pearlsnapstudios.com and find out what they can do for your song. No matter what genre you write in, they can help you make a demo or fully produced record that you will be absolutely proud to share with friends, family, or even pitch to professional artists. 
Dozens of Songcraft listeners before you have taken advantage of their services and have been more than pleased. We've given you some of the testimonials on air. I'm sure we'll do it again. But find out what they can do for you. Hit up our friend Justin and his team at PearlSnapStudios.com. Tell them that Songcraft sent you and you'll get a discount on your first recording. Part two. Gavin, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. It's great to to speak with you, and uh, it's exciting because Bush is releasing a greatest hits record, and it's the first uh, hits record that actually spans like the whole range, all the way up from the first album to the most recent studio record. Um, so I want to talk a bit just uh, why now? I mean, wh- what was it that sort of made you feel like now's the time that I want to kind of look back, reflect and, and put all of this together in context as kind of an overview of my body of work as a, as a writer and artist. Uh, my manager, <laughs> Peter Katzis, like for me as a songwriter, like it's, it's great because uh, of all the things that I do, if I distill everything I do into one thing that it cannot avoid, <laughs> one thing that leads every single thing I do, um is writing songs you know and so to be a songwriter is um is as you guys know you know <clears throat> it's a really arduous pro- like tom way says best writing songs is either uh easy or impossible <laughs> and uh yeah. so somehow i feel as relevant to myself as the last song i wrote you know mm. i wrote one on friday i had a uh saying whatever being doing company songs and nothing fills me with more joy, you know, and more sense of being in the present. So conversely, the idea of stopping and taking stock of where I've been and what I've done, I had been running down the road for years from that because I just thought it was, um, you know, any any energy in the studio, any energy putting out records, any energy kind of uh, making new friends, fans, was about new music. So it's been pretty wild doing the press on it because I got a moment to kind of, I just have no, sometimes I'm a, my own worst enemy. It's like Forrest Gump or something, you know, like that, where that scene where he won't stop, where he's running, stop, you know, because he's, <laughs> he just can't get the idea of stopping. There's a, I have a little bit of that about me. And so I was forced to really take stock. And in a strange way, uh, to be honest, you know, I was going through with it with my other manager and songs. I was like, just do it chronologically because there's four other songs that aren't on there. And I love those songs like War Machine and Afterlife. Those songs are not even in it. And um, I just just kept it. I, I really worked hard on the artwork, but I just said the song list should be chronological. So it wasn't even me. And yeah, it's, it's a fun opportunity to take stock and to kind of realize, you know, it's like, it's like running from a tidal wave. You know, like I'm running and it's behind me. And I'm going to look back and I'm like, God, that's pretty cool. You know, there's... It's not the biggest tidal wave has ever been in songwriting, but it's by no means the smallest. So I was yeah. like, that's cool. So I've been, yeah. that, that's been a healthy thing, you know, fun thing to reflect on. That was a long answer. No, that's great. And it's interesting. I, when you were saying that, I was thinking back, uh, obviously very different uh, genre, but I remember interviewing Merle Haggard, uh, you know, and who's probably one of the finest songwriters in, in country music history. Um, Any genre, actually. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. And he was about 78 when I asked him, I said, what's the best song you've ever written? And without missing a beat, he said, I haven't written it yet. And it's that idea that, you know, as a songwriter, you never want to rest on the accomplishments of the past because you're juiced up by, you know, what lies ahead of the next song. And when you said that about, you know, the song that you wrote Friday, I think that that's what keeps a songwriter really vibrant and, you know, to, to be able to say like, yeah, I've written songs that are, that have been huge hits. Uh, but I'm super excited about the next one too. I'm excited about what's happening right this minute. And, you know, that that's the mark of like a true songwriting spirit. I think. I made it. I'm a real <laughs> songwriter after all. They were wrong. <laughs> you they and Merle. Were wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's an incredible journey. I mean, I think for me, the most fascinating thing about life is the uh, um, knowledge that is available to uh, the, the dumbasses that we are. You know, kind of like, <laughs> I feel quite ignorant and I really enjoy the whole thing of learning more and more. Um, I am really fascinated by different guitar tunings, anything that will get me out of my comfort zone and change things up. So it's been interesting to go through, look through my back catalog with some different tunings in there. We always did like had some drop D and stuff like that, but some of that's moved around a bit. It's been, uh, I'm jumping questions, but it's been an interesting path because the idea is, is that, yeah, you know, I just have to look at as a songwriter, I just all I have to do is think of Bowie, you know, the, the Beatles or, or the Sex Pistols. And I go, oh fuck, there's so much headroom yeah. to go. You know, there's so many bands that write these are some amazing songs that I kind of go, oh yeah, I want to write a song that makes me feel like that. I mean, so yeah, it's in, it's got to be infinite. And another great friend of mine, probably I think the smartest guy I know, said to me, you know, you'll do your most valuable work into your 80s. If you're a creative person, you continue to distill what it is now. It's not going to be like, obviously, flying around the stage and rolling around on the ground, but um it's inspiring to know that really it's an infinite uh, form. Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned some of those classic artists because, you know, uh, even though you're someone who's not necessarily conditioned to look back, I, I want to ask you about your earliest influences and, you know, but particularly this idea of, you know, sometimes when we're kids, um, music is all around us, but there's maybe a moment when we have our first significant interaction with music, uh, a song that you heard and you go, what is that? And, and are you able to pinpoint that in your own life when, when you heard some music that made you stop and go, either that's something I want to be more like or that's something I could do or, you know, what, what would that moment have been for you? Oh, that's what I could do. Well, no, I didn't have, I didn't have that belief in myself for a few years. My first mm. explosion with music was listening to it. And, uh, and then this, um, I was really lucky because, like, my, my you know, I grew up with my, um, with my dad, but... Um, my mum when I was younger and uh, they had, um, they broke up when I was 12. So uh, they, they had only a few records, but they were really the kind of reverse of flack um, sort of a um, little bit of uh, Roberta, there was a reverse flack. There was um, Donny Hathaway. Yeah. <laughs> there was like uh, Queen. There was like a four or five records of like, major artists you know major songs that go in your dna yeah. um mainly to do with i think melody you know because that they did have a soaring beautiful kind of r&b melodies um but i was lucky enough to live through that revolution which we had with punk which was that's when punk took over 
and I was a, a, a young a young kid and I saw the revolution of punk. Mm. I saw it happen. I saw the outrage in the street. My sister was older than me. My, uh, she knew all the punks. You know, I put the egg wire in my hair. I was like, you know, 10, 11 years old. Do you know what I mean? Like go yeah. down and hang out punks the test. It was like this cultural vibe. And the Sex Pistols and all these bands were happening and they, they, the country was outraged. It was all in the newspapers. And they went on a national TV show and they called a, 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 the, 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 um, the presenter, they could, dirty, rotten, I can't, they just swore at him. No one had ever swore on TV ever in England, like ever, you know what I mean? So it was just like uh, Bill Grundy. And um, so that was the inc an incredible moment because now, you know, if you think of it opposite, you know, music is, I mean, maybe if, if Kanye, you know, is in Venice with his, you know, maybe we all see that, but we don't see much. You know, <laughs> our worlds don't don't cross too much. It's so fragmented. But when you can unite a whole country, you, you know, in like shock and outrage, I was yeah. like, I just fell in love with it because I just thought it was so fucking great. Because I was like that. And anyone, you know, all kind of adults and authority and sort of, to me, I was a, I was a punk. And I didn't realize it. And what that did is it spoke to me and it gave me a, um, an energy. And, you know, I still, you know, that's the, the funniest thing that people kind of miss about me and never never got that the reason that I make had made the music uh from the beginning of Bush that was more aggressive and more guitar oriented is because there's an two an antidote or contained two essential ingredients you know first off I was not interested in Britpop because it was too contained and I had too much rage mm. it's had too much rage and all the American bands that I saw at the beginning of that time had this amount of rage and it, you know when I heard the bands like um um, you know, and Bon Jovi were massive, you know, or mm. Poison or, you know, those kind of American rock bands to me were sort of, they, they just weren't what I thought I could do, I could connect with. And when I heard those kind of like those bands that were more, that were sort of more post-punk, you know, than, mm. than anything, you know, went to kind of like Public Image and Gang of Four, but there's some of these American bands, so it was the, it was that punk spirit they gave me the desire to, to not do any kind of like safe kinks. You know, I don't, there's not my kind of thing. I like more spill and more kind of, I like more, you know, plaintive pain in music and sort of spill, yeah. bleed, so to speak. And so that's why I like that music. And um, yeah, so I think that early on, those those were the, that was the, that was the, the, the changing point because I never really lost that spirit. So yeah. it was the most seismic thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, your first uh, Bush record, 16 Stone, was enormous, came out in 1994, certified six times platinum very, very soon uh, after that. Um, there were five singles. All of them were top five singles on, on Billboard's charts. Um, and Everything's In is the one that, that was the first that we probably, most of us, uh, that's how we met you <laughs> as listeners. <laughs> There's no sex in your violence There's no sex in your violence Yeah. 
and that song has these kind of sly uh, Easter eggs where you kind of reference Bowie, you know, you reference um, Jane's Addiction, uh, you reference Tom Waits. Um, you're 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 putting these little Easter eggs there for people who uh, I think are, are going to recognize it, but it's probably going to fly over the heads of. I mean, it took thirty years for someone to tell me that, but yeah, absolutely, of course. <laughs> It was completely misunderstood in, in that, uh, you know, at that time, Suede were being fated as the great saviors. Um, Bowie, this is all based in jealousy, which is, which is a terrible emotion, and I've really tried to get rid of most of it. It's a terrible emotion. But I remember he did an interview for NME, and he was sitting there telling Brett, who, who is brilliant, and Suede were brilliant. It, it was just a different thing to what I was doing. And, it, you know, I didn't, didn't get it so, as much at the time. But I can see that that they it was they were an incredible band, of course, um, and I just was straight up like I was going nowhere at that time when I wrote that song. You know, I'd been just kicking around. I was doing a band. I thought, fuck everyone, fuck Britpop, fuck this, fuck that. I'd have been big in Camden. I didn't know what I was doing. I was lost. But it was just like it just I wasn't lost. I was on stage and singing uh, little things. I was like, I don't fucking sing this song. I just thought I was much more going towards a maybe get an indie label maybe um just accept the life of a sort of a post-punk grungy rock english band that was not going to be fashionable in london i knew that so i didn't have this you know what i mean like in hindsight you could you know there's an assumption there's some like ridiculous master plan when in fact it was like a series of um incredible fortunate meeting of people and timings and um just all the all the cards coming up roses, you know, at that yeah. time, and that's what gave us the chance. But yeah, when your cards come up roses, you know, it's like you may have had uh, many many years of just your soil covered in shit. <laughs> <laughs> Good quote. <laughs> I've never used that before, but it just came across my mind because <laughs> you heard it here. I feel old country, you know, because you guys are always guitars. <laughs> Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking of as as going back through these songs and, you know, uh, in 1994, when that record came out, that was that's the year that Scott and I, uh, we were in high school together. We graduated from high school that year. And, you know, it's a very sort of contradictory time for a young man. There's there's a lot you're kind of like processing in your head. And I, I at the time, identified so many moments of contradiction in your lyrics, like obvious and intentional contradictions. And I'm even going to go through just little things. Summer is winter, a line like that. Um, come down, mostly me, mostly you. Um, and then my favorite in, in Glycerin is I'm never alone, I'm alone all the time. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the role of contradiction in your lyrics. Um, you know, uh, we've talked to some lyricists that are very literal in their approach, and they always want to put something out there that you can easily understand and digest. But I see here that you're that you're sort of expressing something about duality, you're expressing something about difficulty, that there's a conflict in the lyric that maybe it doesn't matter to you if I even understand, as long as I feel it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's fun to indulge the lyrics. Um, there's duality all the time. So the idea is, is I think, um, that it's when you find yourself in a certain situation and you know you should be feeling one thing, but you're feeling something else. And instead of feeling uh, isolated about that or alone about that, if I write that, um, that makes that person connected to me because they, because I understand them, you know. And that's the most powerful thing throughout 
all this time is the connection with people. And when you meet people, a lot of people who found so much to hold on to. You know, my belief is that when you write a song, it goes out into the world and it becomes animated. It becomes real, you know, animate by being listened to. You know, it's just on its own. It's just like information it needs a listener. And once the listener listens to it, often in headphones or in a car, you, you, I'm, my, my words are in someone's brain, like those guitars, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, uh, it, that song directly belongs to them. Like every, every song I love belongs to me. You know, and the reason I love it and what memory it has for me. And that, that memory can change all the time. I, mean, I sing, come down in a really, really honest way because all I have to do is like an actor, use it as a, use that lyric as a, um, which is what the whole thing is, right? It's like everyone interprets the lyric as an actor would. And uh, therefore it becomes real to me every single day. And there's always some cloud I will come down from, but, um, but you do. <laughs> and that's the way it goes. I don't know. That's what I find most. Um, I think it's probably the most durable thing throughout these thirty years is the fact that, that ability for people to connect. I think with us, not just with the music, which they do as well, and not just the performance and the videos, but just the lyrical content. Um, because I get to hear it all the time, and I never get tired of it. It's the best compliment anyone could tell me. They say that you know, they're sending me your most sacred, important job you devoted your whole life to really means something to me and let me tell you why and i'm like down to listen you know i'm <laughs> yeah, like right. it's a beautiful thing it's an incredible thing so yeah so yeah that duality is because you know the conversely if you were like you know some if you say summer is hot and winter is cold you don't you're not connecting with anyone because you're just sort of keeping very <laughs> Uh, the opposite of that you know i'm not saying you're implying i should but i'm saying that that would be the sort of uh someone that would be the uh, hopefully the ai version right right before it gets any feeling right. <laughs> just just a fact <laughs> just a- um well i read on the internet which uh i'm sure it's always true always true whatever you read on the internet no, anything. you want to uh, but- watch you want to be careful doing that <laughs> I read uh I read that Come Down was actually uh the first song that you wrote for for that album and and I read that it was the first song that you ever wrote uh solo is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, it's nothing well, the first one's not. I mean, I don't I don't want to mean the right the record. I just it was the first when I was looking to start the band and I uh, my second band had disbanded or whatever. The, the guitar player I worked with had uh, fired me. Um you know, we hadn't been, you know, for a couple of years to try to get a deal and all that fucking bullshit. Right. And uh, he said, me and like, maybe we should just go our separate ways. It's not really working. And I was like, you know, cool. Okay. And then I started to look for guitar players. And I knew Marco Peroni lived around the corner from me. 
he was in Adam and the Ants. I don't remember. He was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I remember going to his house. I was like, can you write me a hit? You know, can we just write a hit? Just, he goes, oh, I don't know about, oh. And I was trying to make him to work with me, but he wasn't really into working. He wasn't very well at the time. But I was like, can we, I don't know how to write a hit. How do you write a hit? Because he had the hits for Adam and the Ants. You know, it was a fantastic band, Adam and the Ants. You know? yeah. And uh, then he got me in touch with uh, Neil Stevenson, who's a guitar player, lovely, lovely fella. I played with him a little bit. Um, and I couldn't find anyone. I was like, God, you're such a pussy. You know, you like, you say you're a songwriter, but you like waiting. I, I sort of played bad guitar. You know, I began as a singer and then I sort of progressed to playing, you know, badly, slowly and all that sort of stuff. And so when I was in my second band, I wasn't, I was playing at home, but it wasn't, he wouldn't let me play in the studio. He wouldn't let me write on it. He wouldn't let me say, I'll do the, so I was like, okay, and I was intimidated because he was a really good rock guitar player. I kind of learned what band I didn't want to be in because it was very straight ahead, bluesy rock. So since him, I didn't really use the blues in my music uh, too much, a bit of slide and zen, that sound. But generally, like, there's no blues, straight up blues solos on a Bush record because I just don't, it's not for that music for me. Um, yeah. Uh, Steve Ray Vaughan, fucking, yeah. you know, genius. But uh, yeah. I didn't really like it for me. So uh, when I was looking for people to work with, I just felt like a fraud. I was like, you're fraudulent, you know? Just write a song, you know what I mean? How many chords? It like, takes four chords if you want to write a song in four chords, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I just sat down and, and uh, Come Down was the first song that I wrote. And I was like, okay, I get this. I see it, all right. And it felt really very good to do it. And then when I took it to the guy, he, uh, to Nigel, he was busy being paid regularly to do these like corporate videos. So he didn't want to, so I said, now do you want to write me? Cause I, I'd met this guy, I met Nigel. So do you want to write? He goes, no, no, no. But if you've got any songs, I'll record them. And I'd met him and we played to some, um, he really liked the gun club and um, Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds. And I met him through this uh, friend of mine. So I was like, he was a pretty cool guy. Um, he didn't have like the flowing locks <laughs> and it didn't look like a rock star that could be in Poison, but I kind of liked that. You know, I thought it was yeah. kind of cool right. and a sweetheart guy. And so we started working together. So I took him to come down, and I guess um, maybe any of the others or a 16 star, you know, as just as songs that I had. I had the rhythm, I'd have, uh, you know, I'd have rhythm, the riffs, and the chords. Yeah. And then he would record them. And then he would turn turn on the magic. And that's what I realized. I didn't think I was going to be successful, but I thought it was going to be interesting. When I began working with him and I heard back, uh, Come Down, for example, and just the Billy Cobham thing on, on the Massive Attack had come out and they'd taken that, that whole thing. I was like, so when I was hearing that back in the bath, I was like, I bet I could take that. That's so modern. And this band is so cool because no one's going to hear it. We're going to play like, we're going to sign to Rough Trade. I'm going to play to 12 pubs uh, across England. I'm going to have a bit of a laugh. I'm going to have a really, you know what I mean? And um, that's what we did. And that's how, and every time I took him a song, I thought that it would mean I would impress him enough. He'd want to write with me, but he'd say, no, nah, this is great. This is really good. You keep writing like that and I'll keep demoing. And so, we got into that um, uh, thing, and then when we when we signed, when we got you know we got the rhythm section, they had no interest. They just wanted to go on holidays while we were on tour, so they went on holidays. <laughs> and you know we we and then I would would just continue on the same, and um, that's how it went. So it was never like 
I, I mean, now my songwriting is really different now. I still do that myself, you know, even more so with the whole tracks and all that stuff. It's, so like a lot of, a lot of me. And, um, but I also will receive music. I'll have, receive a bit of music given from my band. It's like any way it comes now, I don't care. It's like, I don't need to sit and toil over the backing track for every single song, every record I make. It's like, I always remember that great cover of Van Morrison, who I love, but, um, I don't know which one it is, but he's standing, he's like got an acoustic here, and he's got a flute here, and he's by a piano. It's all pictures of fucking. So, you know, I don't even credit myself for things. We don't, we just don't even, this is like, you know, just if you're on it, you're on it. But no one yeah. knows what we do, but there's lots of stuff that we yeah. do. Um, I think it's hilarious when lead singers put their keyboards by their names. Like, <laughs> who gives a shit? <laughs> it's so funny percussion <laughs> that's why it's so good yeah. you go look at some some album credits now and you'll be like okay yeah. you'll see Absolutely. a pattern forming you'll see something emerge right tambourine <laughs> well the best is lead and background vocals it's like really you sang your own yeah, yeah, great, yeah, great yeah, job yeah. it's so, so good like you assume that the band should yeah. be doing everything and really yeah. anyone else credited is helping the band otherwise the band should be playing you know, just at any point, there should be uh, the band on the track. And yeah. It's for the right. benefit of the not for like <laughs> In the 70s, uh, you would actually see, it would say like fuzz bass. It wouldn't even just say like bass. It would just say like, you'd have to be like, oh, this guy played the fuzz bass. It's like, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, that's why we like, we do the deals. Like I do the, with the songwriting splits. Just yeah. make a deal, keep everyone happy, go yeah. about your life. You know, the ones where they go, you know, they sit there and yeah. uh, they're like, I wrote the middle eight. So I, you know, just yeah. that stuff. It's like, I think if you're there, you just, you're cool. If you're in the room, that's an easy split. And if yeah. you're not in the room, you just like do something that's consistently generous and simple so that um, everyone is has a nice holiday and doesn't feel like, <laughs> hang on, you know, I can't go on holiday, you know? Right. You know, um, on the songs where there are no splits, the ones that you've written by yourself, I mean, there are many. And especially, a lot of these early hits, you know, the songs you wrote solo, which which I imagine as a young artist must have been simultaneously validating and shocking. Um, but I remember we talked with... Uh, I split them all. I didn't... I do do a whole deal to split them all. Not, right. you know, you just like, you make you make the right deals and be smart, but you have to be generous to your band. Sure. You can't just take the money and run. So, right. uh, so no, no, no. I, I, I try to be as generous as I can because I wanted a long career. You know, I didn't want to... <laughs> There's no point in like pissing people off you know people Absolutely. fight about money all the time so stupid you shouldn't fight about yeah. money. um but I'm, I'm curious about you know as you began to come into your own and sort of understanding your abilities as a songwriter and say look i'm these songs are turning into hits like i'm my instincts are working you you can have a lot of people especially the more success you get that want to come in and say you know what if you really want this to be a hit you should you should do this you should launch on the chorus this way or do that and you obviously have proven yourself from a very early standpoint in the band's career as having great hit instincts. Does anyone try to get in there and mess with what you're doing? Or have you always been able to keep it pretty self-contained? Well, I mean, I've been pretty lucky because what happened is, um, I mean, I probably could have done with more guidance here and there. But uh, I obviously, every single producer I work with is right there with me. Yeah. Um, but it's... Um, and at the beginning, you know, I had a very aggressive 
record label who were very aggressive about the sound of the record mm-hmm. and about mixing it and that Paul Palmer took that um, uh, everything zen. They claimed that the mix wasn't, no one liked the mix and then they did a mix and everyone liked the mix. It's, you know, it's one of those, I mean, success has many fathers, but definitely Paul Palmer uh, um, and um, uh, was, was instrumental in helping that to sound right. Mm. And, um, and, uh, but when I bring a song to people, um, I have a, I may not have been confident up to the point I got that song going. You know what I mean? Mm. I may have taken a minute, but, but when I present a song to a Bob Rock, Clive Langer, whatever, Dave Sardi, whoever I've worked with, um, I gotta have. I have some faith in the integrity of what I'm offering. You know what I mean? It's like so vulnerable. That is it? Do you like it? You know? Because if you feel like that, it probably wouldn't. So it's not like I ever did stuff uh, that got um, majorly rejected. But I didn't go to them with the sort of ideas that didn't make it. You know? There's all the ways along. It's nothing. You know, as songwriters, I guess you are songwriters too. You go. It's really. How liberating is it to work in the studio, maybe doing tracks for a week, maybe do two, one, you know, maybe do one, one a day, go in and see where it goes. At the end of the week, get rid of two, be like, no, no, they're not worth it. Con- con- you know, consolidate work on these three. And that's really, there's a be great dropping all that stuff off and you try and get it good, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think that's why demoing is, 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 a, is a useful process because uh, you hear it. So I've always had a, so I haven't really been where in a situation where A&R has come in. It's been a situation where the producer will do so. By the way, I do would say that every label's always chosen the singles. I've never mm. got involved in that. I've been confused by that. And there's some things that I think are, I go, well, these have all the components that I would like to hear on the radio. I don't understand yeah. that. And every song I'm trying to do uh, should, I mean, I don't make, I don't want to make atonal songs. I, I try and be melodic and interesting and, even when I'm writing riffs. So everything should have a potential to be a popular song. You know, I don't write intentionally atonal dirges just to sort of like (laughs) screw with people. It's clearly my D side, you know, I mean, it's like, I'm always trying to make it interesting and, uh, and new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, there's, there's always that thing of like, you have your life, to write your first record. And then if your first record is successful, then you have this sort of compressed amount of time to write the the second record. And um, your second record, Razorblade Suitcase, there's two songs uh, on the Greatest Hits album, Swallowed and Greedy Fly, that are kind of the, the two that represent that album. Both of those songs kind of in, in some way seem to deal with the idea like with swallowed kind of being swallowed up by this, this big, you know, thing and, and greedy fly is, is kind of about adjusting to the spotlight. You, you wrote your first album as uh, just a guy <laughs> and then your second album, now you're a rock star. Like your entire life has changed in this very compressed uh, period of time. Um, talk a bit about that adjustment in terms of, of, being a songwriter when you're kind of just a everyday dude versus being a songwriter when now you've got the spotlight, you've got the pressure, you've got expectations. Yeah, but for instance, I mean, I do everything wrong. You know, everything's the wrong way around <laughs> for me. So, that, you know, summer is always winter for me. And mm. um, the Bush songs for Bush were only written in a two-year period before Bush began. Mm. These weren't 
songs. I didn't have these songs like since I was like Robin Hood twelve. You know, you know, uh, Neil Young, Robin, uh, old man when he was sixteen. Yeah, jeez. I didn't have that kind of story, and um, so I never had that same problem of like, oh, you've had these for your whole life to have these. I didn't. I didn't. These songs weren't in a case. I went with me everywhere, right? So they were new. And uh, secondly, when I got to that point, you know, I the first most of my life, all of my life, I'd been in the wrong place at the wrong time. I felt, you know, I was always against life. I was, you know, I me, mean? it's like tough, and it never felt right. From family life, everything was all just not, you know, just not in the right place at the right time. And when I got successful as such, or sold a record, or, or sold a ticket to a show. CBGB's in 95 in, in um, New York, um, everything said on the radio. It was like I felt for the first time in my life I had arrived in a place I should be, mm. right, where I could get the freedom to make the, the music that I'd, I'd held on to for so long and I'd, I'd fought off every intruder, every fucking coyote that come around, every sort of bad comment, every rejection, every every label that turned me down, every management that didn't want to manage me, every gig that didn't want me to play at their venue, you know what I mean? So I had all that diet of that, you know, steady diet of not, in Fugazi case, steady diet of nothing. I had a steady diet of failure. So mm. once you have like a lot of years of failure, if you are a street fighter, fucking Scottish, you got to, kill me you know drunk mm-hmm. you gotta kill me else i'm gonna get back up and fuck you up you know what i mean like i'm like yeah. just like bruce lee just gonna fucking keep coming back that's what got me through and so once i get into that portal so to speak of like okay now you can make music now you can but now you can get destroyed by critics now you can get loved by fans now you, can, you know you're in as well it's like fucking good at least i'm in it you know i was like on yeah. the outside for so long yeah so in a perverse way i i felt like I'd, I'd come home. Ah. Does that sound perverse? It seems perverse when I say it, but it, <laughs> it, it truly is the truth. You know? Yeah, no, it's a very honest answer, and uh, and it's interesting. It's not what I would have expected you to say, but I, I think it's... Uh... Pretty hard to be surprising nowadays, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> Surprises are few and far between, especially when you're talking to people, you know? Yeah. Um, speaking of surprises, uh, in listening to the, the chord progression of the song Swallowed, I love the fact that it, in the chorus it has this this kind of four chord progression. It's like the the one to the major three, I think, to the four, and then. But then when you get to the instrumental section, it feels like you're about to just play the chorus chords, and then you don't. You play half of the chorus chords, and you go back to the one again.
Is that the kind of thing that you just like to keep, instead of keeping it just feel like it's rote, like it's just, oh, we're just going to bang out these four chords for the whole song. There's something about that that keeps me as a listener kind of on my toes. Like I can't just, I can't let the song become background music. I always have to interact with it because of what the chords right. are doing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just trying to, on a, on a purely nerdy level, you're just always trying to be simple but surprising. You know, for mm. me, this is sort of very zen-like to find funny little turnarounds. You know, you know, when you're playing, you're like, I'm trying to, you know, write a riff. I'm just like, I'm, you know, I'm not finding it. Whatever, you're yeah. going up, whatever, walk outside, come back in. And then for whatever reason, your fingers go to a couple of notes. You're like, there it is. There's yeah. the riddle that I was asked after yeah. today. And uh, it's just interesting how that comes about. And it's often, uh, or it's just a more, it's simpler than you were, for instance, if, um, uh, going for for example it's like when you are really dumbfounded you can't you have a, a question that you just can't answer you know, whatever the question is and the the usually for me the truth that is that if i've got a situation that i can't um, solve like, you know how will i do about this so said, what's the answer to this situation that usually means that the answer is right in front of me like physically in in the room or around me somewhere that whenever I get forlorn, I just that's because I'm looking up and I'm being like, you know, to like just ground yourself and mm. the answer is gonna be next to you. Someone you know, someone told you yesterday. It's so much closer. So um yeah, I don't know what I'm telling you that, but uh, that's my point. <laughs> yeah. Uh those little things. So doing that, that little change is what keeps you and had it be more standard and more uh, expected what you expect, it would lose your interest right. because you'd know it was going there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um, so a couple of songs on this compilation, the um, remix of Mouth and uh, the song The Chemicals Between Us, these are songs that came out in the mid to late 90s that very much kind of embraced electronic music elements that in no way raise an eyebrow by today's standards because this is, you know, a common thing. Um, but at the time, I mean, there was this real sort of, you know, people could get real in their heads about like the purity of guitar rock or, or what a rock band is. And you guys were, were pretty early in embracing and bringing in some of these electronic elements. I'm an idiot. You. An idiot. I, I just should have stuck <laughs> to 16 star and worked with Clive Langer only. And you'd be interviewing me at a fucking stadium. <laughs> I'd be at a stadium. I'd be at a stadium. I know. Like it just—it was a—it was, was an aesthetic decision to continually uh, try and evolve and let the process of music wash over us. You know, so you know the chronology is really simple for me uh, because it goes. Sixteen Stone was the the songs and, and getting the sound and working with Clive and Alan and, and they're amazing. Um, and I probably should have done another record with them to just solidify that and, and maintain that the, the power but we've been on tour for so long and instead of us stopping uh, and taking the time they wanted they, we, we were on the road for like three years and they they just want us to so it felt kind of a little bit rushed now steve is records a certain way so what i wanted him to capture was how good the band was i thought the band was um uh, for an english band specifically you know really good live uh, just we we just Nigel's so good, it was so atmospheric, there's so much happening. I thought, well, there's a guy, we loved him so much um, that he would capture that. Um, 
And he did. I mean, the only thing I would wish we could have changed on that record is just better, tighter arrangements. We were at that point, we were playing one record in arenas. So we'd gotten to, we'd had to stretch songs out so much to fill the time. We didn't have the songs, you know, to play arenas. And uh, so then when we're doing it, it's a, you know, I sometimes I wish oh, I could get a haircut. Like if I had that, if I had those songs near me now, I'd, I'd kick, I'd beat them around a little bit and get more of what you were talking about swallowed. But it was a really good, um, it's an amazing experience, you know, and it sums up a certain time. The question about the, the chemicals and, and that record, I just wanted to add, so after Steve, the live sound, I think that's why I did the really super, uh, uh, more electronic one, made it in uh, Primrose Hill, and had two studios going with a live band, a live setup, and then a, a studio with um, Tom Elmhurst, a friend of mine that I'd met actually on Steve Albini record. He was a, an assistant at the townhouse, uh, or, or yeah. And um, so I had two studios going. Clive Lane going, I don't know what we're doing here. I was like, we're gonna get it, we're gonna get it, we're gonna we're doing these songs like this electronic feel. Um, and then Dave Sardi, Golden State is more of a band feel. And then, you know, then you go into Sea of Memories, which about real Bob Rock. So that's a chronology, quick chronology yeah. of the approach on those records. But it's always trying to do something different and keep it surprising. I want you to remember A love so full like a send us always And I want you to surrender Sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but it's, uh, yeah, that was the intention anyway. And there's so much that we could talk about. So we're just going to, we're going to skip over your, your solo record, Wanderlust, unfortunately, because I would love to have more time to talk about that. But since we're talking about Bush's greatest uh, hits. My, 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 let's skip over my most collaborative solo record. <laughs> the most collaborative <laughs> record I've made was my solo record. Yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> but yeah, uh, ironic. But, um, you know, after uh, after a, a fairly significant uh, break, um, Bush reformed uh, in about 2010 and, and started putting out some great records. In a lot of ways, I think you guys kind of picked up where you left off in that they sound like Bush records. But at the same time, it's sort of a step, you know, it's not a retread and, and you're kind of moving forward. And I particularly want to ask you about the song um, The Only Way Out, which was on the 2014 album Man on the Run. It's you know, kind of your statement about the idea of like the only way out of something is through something. And it's, it's got that kind of hope. mentioned earlier like you 
you know, a lot of the American music of the late eighties didn't resonate with you. It didn't quite have the rage, but you've always managed to kind of balance rage and despair with like uh, a hopefulness. Like your, your music is not depressing, <laughs> you know? Um, and I'm curious if you have kind of a, of a, an overarching philosophy that you would say kind of comes through in, in what you try to say as a lyricist. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my whole thing is that, um, you know, there's, you know, endless challenges for everyone all the time. But I mean, you have to have life has great meaning and great hope and great beauty and great um, potential. And everyone is full of potential. And uh, I think, like, I have to believe like that, because it gives me such a, a lust for life, you know, I have a real honest lust for life. I feel that um, every day is just an opportunity to just get a tiny bit better at something or think about something slightly differently, be a slightly better at something. And it's so simple. Um, and it's, it's just so gross in the world. You know, there's so many terrible things going on all the time on a collective, you know, on an individual basis. It's, you know, sort of a, there's a moral imperative really that if we're alive, you know, I've got to be, you just to sort of, if everybody had the mindset, just like be a little bit easier going every day, a little bit more focused on the right things, you know, you, the, the big global sigh of relief. It's because we're sort of inundated with people who are sort of like plotting on a downfall and sort of figuring out how they can like squeeze every dollar so that we die, you know, we, we, we the drip feed is down that we get beaten up. You know, so much stuff going on. I mean, you know, it's been, I've been amazed that, you know, the, the, the writer's strike, the actor's strike still going on. Obviously, the writer's strike just resolved. It's like, poor musicians, we got fucked from the get-go. You know, it was get fucked by the labels. Yeah. If we weren't fucked by the labels, uh, then you get fucked by, um, you know, the nabs began. So it's like, fuck, the arsehole out. So the, the labels figure out, well, we have all this intellectual copyright. We're going to, like, figure a way to fuck them a different way from the streaming. And the streaming... And so everyone does great. And the musicians are just, like, providing all the information for these streaming services. And uh, so it's easy for, to be discouraged or to get discouraged about things. But there's also fucking just so many great things about about life, you know, starting with other people and other journeys and other connections. And, and uh, you know, the world is, is, yeah. So I have a very, very, very um, positive outlook in spite of all the barbed wire that you mm. gotta go through and this and that, but because that's just the truth. But uh, there's no sense in not having a life that's filled as much as possible. There's just no sense. It's no sense. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, don't you agree? I just find it really yeah, weird. Yeah. I mean, it's really basic. I'm not an intellectual or <laughs> uptight or anything like that, you know, sort of just want everyone to, you know, just um, get to get the most out of life, really. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine a question to ask after that, but that's that's a really powerful summation. What's your favorite color? Yeah. What's, your favorite, what's your favorite ice cream? Uh, McConnell's uh, salted caramel with a caramel twist. Yeah. <laughs> Usually our best question is, what comes first, the words or the music? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the one everyone that's, loves. That, yeah. That's the one. <laughs> um, when it, whoever comes, whoever gets, whoever comes around, you know, that's what I say. Because um, I do it always, you know. <laughs> um, well, 
kind of in, in keeping with that same concept of, of kind of how you view the world and how that comes through in your lyrics. You know, I listened to a song like more than machines, which was on your 2022 album, the artist survival also included on the greatest hits record. But I mean, that's a song that is like straight up. It's addressing women's rights. Um, it's addressing, you know, environmental destruction. It's addressing AI. In other words, you are addressing all the things that that we're kind of worried about, but also doing so in, I would say, more of a concrete way than than maybe you have tackled some things in the past. Like it's 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 not shrouded in in poetic language. It's like, hey, here's here's what we're we're facing. This is the time to shine. Everything wrong should be right. Girls, you in control, not the government, not the government. Nothing changes, never stops. So what? Breathe. We are more than machines. We are because we feel when everything goes down. You know, I think that the overarching point of that song is that we're we're more than machines. It's like about the, the power of people. Yeah. So I just got to say on those specific lines or about the the, the uh the, the climate situation the money and just because we live in you know we're all realizing now the industrial age uh fucked us you know we thought the industrial age was this incredible sort of you know um advancement in human progress and now we're realizing we're we're reaping all the the hell from it between the slaughterhouses and the the soy and the processed foods and the, you know it's like fuck actually that was fucked up that was wrong, you know? So we're living in this incredible time. Of, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not anti the government, anti people like, you know what I mean? I'm not sitting there like this, like that. But there are, there is a sense that, um, that we are, you know, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of power around us that we're just sort of like these ants just like going about our business. Yeah. You do yeah. get a sense that we sort of, there's a sense of manipulation, but I suppose there's always been, always will be really. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let, let's close things out um, with talking about Nowhere to Go But Everywhere, which is the, the new song. I wish I knew myself better. Was that a song that that um, you had kind of had in your back pocket, or was that written specifically for the compilation? Oh no, this most fun thing. I've I've done it with um, um, a couple of TV shows. I did it with a friend of mine's movie that I wrote. The song called Mr. Triggerfinger. The movie's just about to come out. 
that's writing to order. Like writing mm. to order is really a. I'm like finally. I know which way to turn. You know what I mean? Because you know it's like a blank screen. Like, what tempo? I don't fucking know. Is that uh, what the John Wick song was? The bullet holes? Is, was that a right to order kind of situation? No, not at all. No, no, that was just weird because I put the symphony thing in there and the bullet holes. And when Chad Stahelski, the director, saw it and he had the, he knew it was going to John Wick. He had all the, the ballerinas. So like, he's like, he couldn't believe it. He was thought that. Oh. So no, that was just happenstance. That was just was like yeah. putting it out there in the universe yeah you like kind of having a an assignment so to speak or a, or a, a focus. yeah it was, it was an assignment it was an assignment it's a perfect word yeah. you're a liter- lyricist i can tell so it was an assignment and uh um the assignment was how do you how do you make sense of all these all these decades you know and like what goes on so began with the tuning <laughs> I couldn't go as crazy as the thing, so it just made it just made a drop to a simple, like a simple hardware. I've used it forever, so I thought, well, at least the sound's not going to be so uh, kind of like you know, like last couple of records, like pure like that. So because I thought that'd be too much for each other, then I just thought about uh, the Queen song "Days of Our Lives," and I don't know if you remember that song when we all found out that Freddie was sick. No. And I don't know what it's like for you guys, um, probably too young, but it was like he was a really important person um, in England growing up. You know, whether you, I'm, it's funny because I don't think of myself as a Queen fan, but if you play a Queen song, I fucking love this one. I love it. I yeah. know them all backwards. They're like my DNA. Yeah. The most incredible band, incredible, everything incredible. And that days of our lives, really, as when I was a kid, it really struck me. It really like it, it had the changes in there, the change, the, the musical changes that were medicinal. Mm-hmm. And um, because we know, you know, changes are, are medicinal, right? Yeah. Fifth circle of fifths, all that. Um, so when I got that, when I was messing around in my studio thinking about the song, I just came up with those chords and it just made me feel a certain way. And because they made me feel a certain way, um, it made me, me sing like that because I was, it's through time and I have these friends that my, where I'm a group chat with my three best friends I grew up with. It's really fucking sweet. I want to think about it because we're like grisly fucking grown men now, <laughs> but we still have a, such a laugh and send, you know, just send jokes and memes and pick on the, if the three of us are on there, it's about picking on the one who's not on there. Do you know what I mean? so really, like, damn, it was like, get, you know, it's like, it's fun. Yeah. So uh, and they're all in England, you know. Um, so it was it was fun to write that um, song. So again, so I had the tempo, I had the the feeling. Think about them, think about the Queen thing, and then I just was thinking backwards and sort of, you know, as if I was um, riding on a sort of a promenade in a in a positive way, you know, not being depressing, but but like uh, it was so much younger then, you know. Because that's what's so incredible. When I wrote all those songs, there was no horizon. Now when I write songs, there's obviously a horizon. I'm like, you know, mm. uh, I feel there's a horizon. Although, you know, Jagger bringing out a record when he's 80, like fair play, just kind of love yeah. that guy. <laughs> right, yeah. They're like, you don't want to make love? I'm going to Brazil was one of the lyrics. I read it. I can't remember what the lyric is, but it's just right. like, oh, And for, you know, massive. We're going to go play stadiums, like still the, the biggest band. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's just like, Nothing makes sense. 
but it's all <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, the compilation is called Loaded: The Greatest Hits, nineteen ninety four to twenty twenty three. We have breezed through that period and hit some highlights. It's yeah. uh, great speaking to you, Gavin. Thank you for uh, your time. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com.